0: Hello, good people. Thank you for being here. This is my very first video for YouTube, and I'm very nervous. Well, it's my first solo video. As most of you watching will know, I have been on Paul Vanderclay's channel several times. So, this is all his fault. So, Paul Vanderclay started making videos about Jordan Peterson. I guess it goes back a couple of years now and bringing a bunch of other thinkers into conversation with Jordan Peterson chief among them of course CS Lewis of which Paul Vander Clay is such a great fan and then he became engaged with the work of Jonathan Pajot had conversations with him had conversations with John Berbeke and the whole thing just exploded he's had conversations with a bunch of randos, mostly men but a few women and um, it's just been Great, I think it's the best thing going on online. So I couldn't resist jumping in, even though the technology is messing with my boomerism, big time. Anyway, I've been especially inspired by a couple of women in this corner of the internet. One of them is Karen Wong. Karen Wong has a channel called The Meaning Code. And thanks to getting to know Karen Wong and talking to her on her channel, I can now say, that I actually have a friend who, in casual conversation, will say, I was just thinking about quantum mechanics the other day, and et cetera. (laughs) It's great, she's so smart. And then, there's Sibylla King, with a wonderful channel called Equality Existence, and what she is doing is exploring the work of Persig through Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, now, she really has a lot to do with me being on here because I have a particular thinker whose work I wanted to bring into conversation with this in a particular book, and I really had no idea exactly how to do it. I couldn't figure out what the path would be. I've been watching her, and she has really shown me what is a good way to go through material like that and bring it to people and bring it into conversation with these issues and questions and explorations that we're doing so I really appreciate that very much so who is the thinker and what is the book that I want to bring into this conversation well the thinker is Joseph Ratzinger and the book is introduction to Christianity his great classic now I'm not the only person who thinks that Ratzinger belongs in this conversation, you might remember if you watched the lectures, the biblical lectures that Jordan Peterson did the first three lectures, it was a young man who during the Q&A three times he tried to get Peterson to engage with something that Joseph Ratzinger had written in this book and The first couple of times um, Peterson kind of engaged with him a little bit, and by the third time, I think Peterson was a little bit annoyed, and I know the audience was too, and the reason was because what he was talking about with Peterson in that question was something that there was just no way that it it fit into a QA. and a It was the kind of thing, and Peterson even said this, if I was gonna talk about this, this would be like hours long. So it was not an appropriate thing for, um, for a a Q and A. I I think that that young man's approach really left something to be desired, but I think his heart was in the right place and his theological and philosophical instincts were dead on because Joseph Ratzinger is the thinker that we need to hear in this space. Why? Okay, so first of all, Let me say how I think Ratzinger intersects with some of the thinkers that we're already talking to and talking about. All right, so as far as Paul Vanderclay is concerned, when you watch the conversations that Paul Vanderclay has, one of the things you'll see is people coming to this point of really wondering what faith is. Do they have faith? How could they have faith? What is the difference between belief and faith? And that's that question is actually addressed in the very beginning of introduction to Christianity that is something that Ratzinger deals with now what Paul van will often say and which is so true is he will say coming to have faith is not an intellectual thing it's more like falling in love and that's another place where, uh, where um, Van der Clay intersects with Ratzinger because Ratzinger is really focused on getting people to understand that God loves them and that, it, that Christianity is about this loving, personal relationship with God. In fact, his, when he became Pope Benedict, his first encyclical was Deus Caritas Est, which is, that is God is love. So that is one of the themes always in his writing friendship with God and a loving relationship with God Um, another person that I think Ratzinger intersects with really well is Jordan Peterson okay Ratzinger grew up during the Nazi regime he has very deep familiarity with what it is like to live under totalitarianism and what The mentality of totalitarianism and this is something that he addresses in his writing and it is um, something that of course has really been a theme of Jordan Peterson's work additionally Ratzinger writes a great deal about the logos and as everybody knows that's a big deal for Jordan Peterson I think Ratzinger also intersects really well with John Dervakie John Ravicki has this amazing series called "Awakening from the Meaning Crisis," and he is um, he is going coming at the meaning crisis from two angles. One is from philosophy. it what, what are the philosophical strains that have led us to where we are right now? And also cognitive science. Now, the cognitive science stuff, which is just phenomenal, that John Verveke has been explaining in his series was not available to Joseph Ratzinger because that's been something that's only like the past couple of decades or so that's been available to thinkers. But the idea of science speaking to people of faith and speaking about the experience of faith and speaking about spirituality is very familiar to Joseph Ratzinger, who is always very interested in science. Especially physics and quantum mechanics, he's very interested in and very knowledgeable about. He's also very knowledgeable and interested in astronomy. By the way, the Vatican has its own astronomer. There is um, there is an observ a Vatican observatory. And Joseph Bratzinger became a member of the European Academy of Arts and Sciences the year after it was founded. It was founded in 1990, he became a member in 1991. But even before that, for all of his professional life, he has been rubbing shoulders with um, with some of the most accomplished scientists in Europe. So science is something that he is not afraid of, it is something that he is uh, very uh, conversant in, and that shows too in this work, Introduction to Christianity. Another person that Ratzinger, intersects with really well in this space is Jonathan Pajot because Jonathan Pajot an Orthodox icon carver and an artist is very interested in beauty and in how beauty touches the human soul in ways that um, go past our intellectual defenses This is something that Joseph Ratzinger talks a lot about. And in fact, I didn't just talk about it, but he also, like Jonathan Pagel, was a practitioner of beauty. So when he became Pope, he was called the Pope of Aesthetics because he wanted the liturgy to be beautiful, the buildings to be beautiful, the vestments to be beautiful. He was very concerned that everything having to do with our worship of God would be surrounded by and infused with beauty so I think that he intersects with Jonathan real well, really well and with other people who are into the arts I think we'll appreciate things that he has to say now since Paul Vanderclay has been so interested in bringing CS Lewis into this conversation I thought what I would do is do a little quick comparison between CS Lewis and Joseph Ratzinger um, and the reason why is because I want you to understand that if you're fine if, if you found value in CS Lewis with regard to the conversation surrounding Jordan Peterson I think you will also find value in Joseph Ratzinger. let me kind of lay that out a little bit okay so CS Lewis came of age during World War one and Joseph Ratzinger came of age during World War two the formative war for C.S. Lewis led into the Roaring Twenties and the Great Depression. The formative war for Joseph Ratzinger led into the Atomic Age and the Space Age. C.S. Lewis is very much a medievalist. um, It has a lot of training and study in that field and I think he approaches that study with a bit of nostalgia. And this shows up some, um, especially in the Planet Narnia um, books or, or book and lectures that you can see online, which is an exploration of how he used the medieval understanding of the role of the planets and their influences in the books, the chron- in the Chronicles of Narnia books you don't find any nostalgia about the past in joseph ratzinger um he feels like a more modern thinker when you read him now that doesn't mean he dismisses the past the book introduction to christianity has as its basic framework the apostles creed but he doesn't have that sense of nostalgia kind of that you get with c.s lewis CS Lewis of course is an apologist and he is uh, had, writes in a very popular style and also writes fiction so he writes of course in English he's a great English wordsmith and he's um, you know he's very British in his um, in his communication lots of lovely turns of phrase in the English language and he writes, when he writes for a popular audience, he's able to take very complex things and break them down and make use lots of um, metaphors and illustrations, make them very accessible to the general public. Okay, you know, you get that with Joseph Ratzinger, okay? First of all, when we read Ratzinger, we're reading him in translation. So we're always gonna lose a little bit of what it might have been the beauty of the original. We're either reading something translated from Latin or from um, German. By him. And he is that precision, that German precision. Um, he's also fluent in English, Italian, French, Spanish, Latin, and of course he reads Biblical Hebrew and Greek. So when it comes to the continental, his, he's a continental thinker, not a British thinker. When it comes to the continental philosophy, he has read broadly and deeply in in the original languages. Of those thinkers so he's able to bring all of that into his writing as well his main audience always for everything that he's done in his work uh, throughout his life his main audience has usually been other professors theologians philosophers and uh, clerics so he has never really developed an easy popular style He's not a, he was not a, a, he's beloved pope, but he's not a pope of the masses. He's not the personality of JP Two, John Paul II. He is not that personality. um, You know, John Paul II was very at home in a big stadium full of people, and he loved to, to kind of interact with and feed off of the crowd. Not Benedict. Benedict is more at home in the classroom or in the, a graduate seminar than he is before a crowd and there's a little bit of when he became Pope Benedict there's a little bit of um, complaint about his style of communication as Pope it was like people complained that has he forgotten that he's not still a professor well I don't think I think you could take him out of the classroom but you couldn't take the professor out of out of him so um so he's not as easy to read as C.S. Lewis, but I do think that if you have found value in, the th- in reading C.S. Lewis in, um, in conversation with Jordan Peterson, that you'll find a lot of value in reading uh, Ratzinger or in um, discussing Ratzinger as well. I wanna talk a little bit about Ratzinger's life real quick, um, just a quick outline of his life to prepare us for diving into this book okay he was born in 1927 um, to a very devout family he was born on Holy Saturday in fact in Bavaria which is a a region of Germany at the age of five he saw a Catholic cardinal come visit his town and he saw the beauty of the vestments of the cardinal and the beauty of the liturgy surrounding the visit of the cardinal and he announced to his family that someday he was going to be a Catholic cardinal the family really chafed under the Nazi regime. Um, they, In fact, uh, one of Benedict's cousins had Down syndrome and the Nazis took the child away and killed him. At the age of 14, he was forced to join the Hitler Youth, which all, what's happening with all the young boys, maybe the girls too, I don't really know about the girls, but he was forced to join the Hitler Youth, but he resisted involvement as much as he safely could is by no means an enthusiastic member of the Hitler Youth. He entered seminary in 1943 now, he's only 16 years old at this point, so you're talking about a pretty precocious young kid. But he was quickly drafted into the German anti-aircraft unit and trained in infantry and this is you know we're getting here 43 44 we're getting now closer to the towards the end of the war so when the allies began to come into germany he abandoned his post and fled back to his home bavaria um he almost immediately upon the ending of the war went back into seminary and he was ordained in 1951 he's only 24 years old now he is a priest by 1958 he is a professor at friesland college Besides his academic studies and teaching, he loves classical music, he loves to play the piano, and he especially loves Mozart. He got teaching positions at the University of Bonn and later at To begin. And then he um, begins these very wonderful relationships with students so and actually going back to when he first became a professor all of the time he he has these sets of students that will come and visit him in the summertime and so that he they can have roundtable discussions of theology and philosophy and so that he can keep up with their lives and their careers and this his former students really become very close friends of his In 1969, after serving as a theological expert at the meetings of Vatican II, he returns to his beloved Bavaria and to the University of Regensburg. And there he founds a very influential uh, theological journal. By this time, he is recognized as one of the great theological minds uh, in the world. So in 1977, he's appointed Archbishop of Munich and Friesland. And also that same year he is given the red hat, he is made a Meta cardinal, and he is 50 years old at this time. In 1981, John Paul II made him head of the CDF. Now, uh, the Congregation for Doctrine and Faith, we Catholics just call it the CDF. It's a Vatican office um, that is kind of a theological watchdog and is available also to answer theological questions. And so the popular media nicknamed him God's Rottweiler. Now it's like such a misnomer for this man. He's a kind of a diffident, bookish type of person. Um, And in fact, what's so funny about that is that he's a cat lover. So he has this um, propensity to go ahead and adopt stray cats that are hanging around the Vatican take them to his apartment and start feeding them and taking care of them and so um, he probably found the cats easier to herd than the Catholic theologians he was no fan of liberation theology now liberation theology is an attempt to marry Christian thought with Marxism and it was hot and heavy coming up in South America at this time and um, he was um adamant about uh rejecting liberation theology because the view of the human person that Karl Marx had was no more compatible with catholic anthropology that is the catholic uh, view of the human person than was hitler so um So that was one of the firestorms he had to deal with. He's also no fan of the modernist conception of Jesus that would portray Jesus as just one among many spiritual teachers. Um, He would, you know, his retort on that would be that um, Jesus was the only name under heaven given to men for salvation, which of course is something it says in the Bible. So the unique person, the unique position of Christ is something that um, he really emphasized. So these positions annoyed the liberals in the Catholic Church. At the same time, Joseph Ratzinger encouraged theological creativity. Now, John Paul II, who he actually is, remember this is during John Paul II, is the Pope. So, um, John Paul II wrote an encyclical called Fides et ratio which is faith and reason and in there he called the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas which we call Thomism he called Thomism the perennial philosophy of the church but he also said that other philosophical approaches to the Christian faith were valid for Catholics to explore well I would say Ratzinger was all about these other approaches Um, he understood that the church could no longer simply evoke um, Thomas Aquinas and expect everyone to um, stand up at attention and salute it was not gonna happen and one of the reasons was that Thomism was Aristotelian so sometimes it's just called Aristotelian Thomism or Thomist Aristotelianism because of it's so closely aligned with and based on um, Aristotle's metaphysics. But Ratzinger understood that modern physics and modern quantum mechanics and all of that was really changing the way people thought about the structure of reality. And because of that, those things needed to be incorporated in the way that the faith was presented to the world. And um, this managed to annoy the theological conservatives that he was so um, intent on expressing the faith to people of today in contemporary terms. I want to note one thing that's interesting about Ratzinger, which is, and this was a theme of his uh, writing, and actually made very explicit when he became pope, and that was the theme of the dictatorship of relativism, and he saw the church not merely as like a citadel of faith, but as the last redoubt of human reason. He was very concerned that the church should defend the validity of human reason. In 1997, at um, the age of 70, he tendered his resignation to John Paul II. Now, that's all of the Catholic bishops have have to under canon law. They have to um, give a resignation to the pope at age 70, and then after that. Um, you know if the Pope wants them to stay on they stay on if he says you may resign then they can resign so so he gives a letter of resignation to John Paul II, and I'm sure he knew that John Paul was not about to let him haul back off to Bavaria because um, he was like John Paul II's right hand man one of his most trusted advisors and so he probably looked around the Vatican and thought, hmm, "What job is available here at the Vatican that I would, that would really make me happy?" So when he gave his um, his letter of resignation to John Paul, he asked if he could stop being the head of the CDF and become the librarian of the Vatican Archives. <laughs> now that tells you a lot about his personality and what things you know really tickled him. And I'm sure John Paul probably laughed when he, when he read that, because he was not about to let this world-class brain <laughs> that he had working for him at the CDF go meander around the dusty stacks of the, of the Vatican Library. <laughs> so he, um, he did not allow Ratzinger to retire, and he did not take him up on the idea of changing his job. <laughs> In 2000, in the position of dean of the College of Cardinals was even added to his responsibility. So he's gone from um, trying to herd cats to herding theologians and now trying to herd cardinals. So it just gets worse. <laughs> at the death of John Paul II in 2005, at the Conclave, Joseph Ratzinger was elected to be the next pope and took the name Pope Benedict. He was 78 years old during the conclave he prayed to god please don't do this to me but of course he was outweighed by the millions of catholics who were praying please let joseph ratzinger be our next vote he retired in 2013 um, saying that he lacked the strength and energy required to continue in the position and then there was a new conclave and pope francis was elected Uh, Ratzinger still lives at the Vatican he never got to go back to Bavaria he is now 91 years old and he goes by the title of Pope Emeritus now his book introduction to Christianity is written before any of this stuff happened or before you know this he before he became a bishop before he became a cardinal before he became head of the CDF before he became pope it's all before that it was written in 1968 and it received a very enthusiastic um, welcome, so much so that it was immediately reprinted in 1969. The book is dedicated to his university students, and it is in fact based on lectures that he gave at university. In 2000, he wrote a new preface for the book discussing how it stood in the face of All of the changes that had taken place in the last third of the 20th century and all of the momentous historical events that had happened since it was originally written. And he offered some thoughts about the um, salience of Christianity in the new millennium. So when we get back together on Ratzinger, I'm going to start diving into that introduction and see what his thoughts were about Christianity in modern times and faith for modern people. Before I get back into Ratzinger though, I'm going to do one or two, I'm not sure how the time will go on it, videos that respond to some of the very recent things that John Verbeke has put out, so fascinating. And um, and after I do that, then I'll get back into Introduction to Christianity. And I hope that you'll join me. I hope that you'll subscribe to my channel and discuss these interesting things with me in the comments. Until we are together again, treat yourself as though you are someone you are responsible for helping because you are responsible, and so am I. And together, we are making the world. Thanks so much for watching.